Welcome to Theory of Indivisibility, solutions-focused evolutionary analysis of our social, economic, and political systems delivered to you in short, digestible episodes. I'm your host, Dr. Sunjata. What's good, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Theory of Indivisibility. I'm so happy that you've chosen to plug in one more again. Welcome back. In the previous episode, we covered democracy, its evolutionary origins, some of its current complexities, and how my theory of indivisibility applies to governance, which at its roots is simply a system for making decisions and resolving conflicts. During today's episode, we are going to discuss the evolutionary origins, current complexities, and how my theory of indivisibility applies to systemic racism. However, we are going to do it a little differently than usual for the remaining episodes of season one. To cover the last two systems, systemic racism and education, I'm going to read essays that I've written that explore each one. First up is an essay titled, Why Police Kill Black People, The Whole Story. After I read the essay, I will provide some brief commentary about what I believe are some solutions to this issue. During season one of Theory of Indivisibility, we are exploring the evolutionary origins, current complexities, and how my theory of indivisibility applies to the following social systems. Power over, patriarchy, religion, ownership, capitalism, democracy, systemic racism, and education. Season one evolves like a book, so for clarity's sake, I suggest starting from episode one if this is your first time listening. A huge shout out to my patrons. Thank you all for supporting the continued production of this show. It really, really means a lot to me. My goal is and has always been to avoid bombarding you all with commercial advertisements and to be fully listener supported. So, If you get value from listening to this podcast and you also like to support it becoming more sustainable, please visit patreon.com forward slash live indivisible to become a patron today. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash live indivisible. This essay was originally written July 9th, 2016. I was challenged to tell the whole story. In the aftermath of two horrific viral videos that showed two African-American men, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, die after being shot and killed by police officers this past week, I took to Facebook and Twitter with my disgust and outrage at a system that I believe hurts both people and police. In one of my posts, I shared a picture of a statistic from a Washington Post article that said, although black men make up only 6% of the U.S. population, they account for 40% of the unarmed men shot to death by police this year. 
a woman took to the comments and she replied and said, what you're also not telling people is what percentage of blacks kill blacks? What percentage of blacks use guns? What percentage of blacks commit what percent of the crime, which explains why there is such a high percentage of black men under 30 that are incarcerated? You have to tell the whole story. End quote. So it is from that comment that I take the challenge to tell the whole story about why such a high rate of African-American men under 30 are incarcerated and killed by police in America. But before I do, I have a challenge for you. I challenge you to read all of it with an objective mind. I challenge you to suspend your beliefs and assumptions. I challenge you to put aside any discomfort you may feel and read all of it and to explore the references that I share over the next few days, weeks, and months. I challenge you to suspend your desire to be right. I challenge you to think really deeply about why you did not learn these things in a history class. And finally, I challenge you to accept that I have no agenda. I am an apolitical systems thinker. I believe in authentic dialogue and compromise during conflict resolution, not debates. My goal is not to win an argument. It is to put forth my best thinking with the hopes that others can build on it. I did my best to find credible resources that provide empirical research and data. If you find that a resource I shared is not credible, please provide me with an alternative credible resource to support your point of view. I took a doctorate level course a few years ago where I was introduced to the concept of systems thinking. There is a strong chance that what I am about to share will not make sense to you if you do not understand systems thinking. Here is a reference that summarizes the concept. Focus on the section that describes the difference between being a systems thinker versus an events-based thinker. Also note that I am a man who is passionate about seeing this country truly unite as one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now back to the challenge that I've been presented with. First, we must all acknowledge that there are some things that we just don't know or understand. There are four stages of learning, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and unconscious competence. For the majority of my life, the information that I am about to share fell into the unconscious incompetence category for me. Unconscious incompetence means you don't know what you don't know, or you don't see the need to learn something because you do not consider it a need. There are two things that I think all Americans would agree on. One, racism is taught. And two, parental guidance has a huge impact on the child's development. So let's start with how racism was first taught. The creation of race. In the 1600s, European scientists began using pseudoscience to conclude that, quote unquote, white people were a superior, quote unquote, race of people. They used stereotypes that became widely believed social truths to support their theories that were later debunked by scientists in the early 1900s. However, by that time, it was too late. The damage had already been done and the forces that would later lead to systemic racism dehumanization, mistrust, and fear of people of African descent in America 
had been set into motion. European and African Slaves When slavery first started in America, both enslaved Europeans and Africans were indentured servants who served their term and were freed. Things soon changed, however, for Africans, and a law was passed that forced them into slavery for life. Initially, poor Europeans, free Africans, and enslaved Africans worked alongside one another and were equal socially. They formed allegiances and supported one another. The elite class of slave owners, businessmen, and politicians didn't like this, so they introduced racism to divide them. It worked. The Origins and Purpose of Policing It wasn't until well after the Revolutionary War in the 1830s that policing in America expanded from an informal community watch volunteer model to the form of policing we see today. This was done as a means to control and intimidate the poor as larger cities started to form and the economic class divide was becoming more evident. After the Civil War, policing in the South was created to intimidate, control, and brutalize Africans. The slave catchers and overseers that maintained order, quote-unquote, which included beatings, killings, lynchings, and rape, during slavery became police officers that enacted the same type of, quote-unquote, order for the next 100 years during the Jim Crow era. With the police being an all-Euro-American organization fueled by classism and racism created to protect the interests of the elite class, most African Americans had two strikes against them from birth. They were both poor and African. Slavery Ends After slavery ended, racism did not. At the end of the Civil War, the vicious forces of racism and poverty were set in motion that would stifle economic progress and obtainment of liberty and happiness for millions of Americans of African descent who are descendants of enslaved Africans. Also, what often isn't mentioned is the mental, emotional, and psychological trauma that enslaved Africans endured, a form of PTSD called post-traumatic slave syndrome that was passed down to future generations. When they were freed, they never received any therapy or counseling. They were promised 40 acres and a mule to help them get started financially, and they never received that either. Dr. Joy DeGroy's book and lectures on this topic helped me to understand why there is so much trauma-induced, internalized, and externalized anger and hatred within so many African-American people. Slavery by Another Name A few years back, I watched a documentary on PBS based on a book titled Slavery by Another Name that made me want to cry. It answered so many questions for me about why so many African-American families have yet to break the cycle of poverty. After all their ancestors endured during slavery, the next generation had to endure this. Begin quote. In this groundbreaking historical expose, Douglas A. Blackman, a Pulitzer Prize recipient, brings to light one of the most shameful chapters in American history, when a cynical new form of slavery was resurrected from the ashes of the Civil War and reimposed on hundreds of thousands of African Americans until the dawn of World War II. 
Under laws enacted specifically to intimidate blacks, tens of thousands of African-Americans were arbitrarily arrested, hit with outrageous fines, and charged for the costs of their own arrests. With no means to pay these ostensible debts, prisoners were sold as forced laborers to coal mines, lumber camps, brickyards, railroads, quarries, and farm plantations. Thousands of other African-Americans were simply seized by Southern landowners and compelled into years of involuntary servitude. Government officials leased falsely imprisoned blacks to small town entrepreneurs, provincial farmers, and dozens of corporations, including U.S. Steel Corp., looking for cheap and abundant labor. Armies of quote-unquote free black men labored without compensation, were repeatedly bought and sold, and were forced through beatings and physical torture to do the biting of white masters for decades after the official abolition of American slavery. End quote. This went on until the 1940s. To provide historical context, my paternal grandparents were 20 years old in 1940. What about crime in African-American communities? The second thing that I assumed that all Americans could agree on is the importance that parental guidance plays in the lives of children. Studies show that 70% of the children of people who are imprisoned will end up in jail too. Begin quote. So what becomes of these children whose mothers and or fathers are locked up? Often they are left to fend for themselves emotionally and the stress of child rearing falls on a grandmother, usually or another surrogate parent, or the children may end up in protective services. These hardships manifest in the children in mental health issues like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and feelings of abandonment, said psychotherapist Dr. Janice Beal, end quote. The results of the heinous crimes of humanity outlined throughout this article have implications that are still hurting many Americans today. Hurt people hurt people. The mostly gang-related murders that we see in urban cities across America are a direct result of everything I've outlined thus far. It is mostly emotionally unstable and abandoned teenagers committing these murders. Even with that said, please note that this study from the U.S. Department of Justice shows that poor African-American and poor European-Americans have almost equal violent crime rates with poor European-Americans being slightly higher. Personal Responsibility Statistics show that the typical European-American person has 13 times more wealth than a typical African-American person. I've heard many people say that, is, that it is because too many African-American people lack the personal responsibility needed to make their situation better. I've heard people say that after slavery ended, everyone was free and had a fair chance to succeed. Many Euro-American people will accurately tell you that their families didn't own slaves or weren't in this country during that time and that slavery had nothing to do with their families progressing. What many of them may not know 
is that they may have benefited from and received advantages due to racist housing policies up until the end of the 1960s that aided millions of working class European Americans to ascend into the middle class and create a foundation of middle class stability. And for some, wealth that their families leveraged to create various opportunities for themselves and for generations to come. Let's look at two examples, the Homestead Act and the FHA. Begin quote. The Homestead Act was signed into law by Lincoln in May 1862, and it remained in place until 1934. By the end of the act, more than 270 million acres of land had been transferred to individuals, almost all of them whom were white, for little more than a filing fee. Thus, by essentially giving away land to white individuals and white-owned businesses, the Homestead Act were the most extensive, radical, redistributive governmental policy in American history. The number of original 1862 homestead recipient descendants living in the year 2000 was estimated to be around 46 million people, about a quarter of the U.S. adult population, end quote. And it didn't end there. After 1934, many of the remaining poor European Americans used Federal Housing Administration insured loans to buy their way out of government housing projects to move to brand new middle class suburban subdivisions. This subsidized home buying boom led to one of the broadest expansions of the American middle class ever, almost exclusively to the benefit of European American families. The FHA's explicitly racist underwriting standards, which rated African-American and integrated neighborhoods as uninsurable, made federally insured home loans largely unavailable to African-American home seekers. 98% of these loans made between 1934 and 1968 went to European-Americans. 98%. Home ownership has long been the key to creating stability and wealth in America. Many European Americans were given an unfair advantage during this era, and today, when African Americans demand reparations or equal opportunities at jobs in certain industries, many of us are told that we want handouts. I've never heard a European American with this stance mention the handouts that their grandparents and parents may have received. Housing discrimination was legal until 1968. To provide historical context, my parents were 18 years old and my paternal grandparents were 48 years old in 1968. Post-racial America. Many people rejoiced that we had arrived and finally got past racism in 2008 when President Barack Obama was elected. Many believed that this proved that equality in America was finally achieved. They were wrong. Begin quote. As the United States celebrates its quote unquote triumph over race, with the election of Barack Obama, the majority of black men in major urban areas are under correctional control or saddled with criminal records for life. Jim Crow laws were wiped off the books decades ago, but today an extraordinary percentage of the African American community is warehoused in prisons or trapped in a parallel social universe denied basic civil and human rights, including the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, 
and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, access to education, and public benefits. Today, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. Yet, as civil rights lawyer turned legal scholar Michelle Alexander demonstrates, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against convicted criminals in nearly all the ways in which it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once labeled a felon, even for a minor drug crime, the old forms of discrimination are suddenly legal again. In her words, we have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. Written in 2010, The New Jim Crow is a stunning account of the rebirth of a caste-like system in the United States, one that has resulted in millions of African Americans locked behind bars and then relegated to permanent second-class status denied the very supposed rights won in the civil rights movement, end quote. It is impossible to, quote unquote, pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you are denied access to society because you have a criminal record because of a poor choice you made when you were an angry, unstable teenager acting out the post-traumatic slave syndrome that you never received therapy for because you grew up in poverty with incarcerated parents. Parents who also grew up with post-traumatic slave syndrome in poverty with incarcerated parents because their fathers were never around because they were picked up in Alabama for a petty crime in 1925 and illegally forced back into slavery for a corporation that is a thriving multinational billion dollar corporation today. Please ponder this realistic hypothetical scenario long and hard. So, if the police were created to police the poor, if racism is taught and creates implicit bias, and the overwhelming majority of African Americans are still fighting their way out of poverty while facing all of the generational roadblocks that I outlined above, could it quite possibly make sense to you that most African American people continue to fight an uphill battle in this country that leads to poor African Americans being disproportionately targeted by law enforcement? In closing, I hope that I've done a good job of presenting with you evidence and facts that illustrate a story of how race, systemic racism, slavery, mental trauma, forced poverty, intentional discrimination and unfairness, and the dehumanization of African Americans in this country for the last 400 years can lead to a cycle of crime and imprisonment that still haunts far too many today. The fact of the matter is this. The reason that African American men under the age of 30 make up the majority of the prison population and are disproportionately killed by police in America is because the systems of racism, poverty, and policing were designed to produce that outcome. I'll conclude by saying this. Throughout American history, many European Americans have been responsible for creating pain, death, and trauma for many African Americans. It's a painful fact to process for many people, but it's true. Please know that I don't want you to feel guilty. I don't blame you for the past. I'm not angry at all European American people. I'm angry with the European American leaders from the past who allowed this system of racism and poverty to exist 
for so long and to hurt so many people. Presently, I'm angry at any American from any ethnicity who rejects to support people who are asking for equality and justice, the very thing that this country was founded on. I just want you to acknowledge that yes, these things did take place, and yes, because of implicit bias and hidden history, you may not have known that the terror that impacted previous generations very much so still impacts us overall as African Americans today. I know that you and I can't change the past, but for those of you who continue to deflect the pain of African American people who attempt to articulate what we have experienced or imply that they are making it up or being manipulated by the left, the media, Democrats, Hollywood, etc., you are literally picking up the torch from those who committed the evils done in the past. Is that the side of history you want to be on? Stop trying to rationalize away our pain. Remember, there are some things that you just don't know that you don't know. If you are pro-love and pro-solutions, simply ask, how can I help fix it? While showing empathy and acknowledging that our pain is real. The end. Thank you for listening to the reading of that essay that I wrote five years ago, uh, back in 2016. So as I sit here on April 1st, 2021, I want to uh, add some context and some commentary uh, to those thoughts that I had five years ago based on some of the current events. And as you all are aware, concepts like defunding the police and police abolition have made it to the mainstream. Concepts that activists have been discussing literally for the last 50 years. And it just now have, has made it to the mainstream. Um, and I just wanted to say that I support the efforts to defund the police. I support the efforts to abolish policing altogether. And I know that that sounds scary to a lot of people. Um, and I just wanted to share that obviously those things would have to be replaced. Those services or those um, efforts would have to be replaced by other professionals who are uh, more trained, better trained uh, to, to de-escalate, better trained to resolve conflicts than police currently are. And those are the things that activists are, you know, um, promoting and advocating for. So I encourage anyone who wants to learn more about those things, and I've talked about them in other episodes as well, uh, to just, you know, research it with an open mind. My assumption is if you're listening to this podcast, there's a great chance that you may you already have. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to, you know, share share those thoughts. And ultimately, I believe that that is uh, the the only solution uh, to to these issues is that we have to create new systems that make the old systems obsolete. You cannot, we cannot reform policing. Policing was designed to protect and serve the interests of the affluent, of the wealthy, of the people who want to wield power over and control of the masses. And the reality is, if we shared resources and we designed our social, economic, and political systems, which are all social systems, if we designed our social systems in, that, in ways that are aligned with the solidarity economy, in ways that are aligned with sharing resources, then there wouldn't be anything to protect. 
because there wouldn't be a small percentage of people who are monopolizing resources. So anyway, again, I have a feeling that most of you who listen to this podcast are already aligned with those type of thoughts and feelings. So I won't belabor that point. So to close out, I'll close out this episode like I do every episode. Theory of Indivisibility is written, produced, and edited by me. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform and share it with friends on social media. It really, really helps. It takes 20 to 30 hours of research, writing, producing, and editing to complete each show. So if you like what you hear, you can show your support in helping to make this show more sustainable by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash live indivisible. That is also where you'll find show notes and resources for each episode. And this episode in particular has several hyperlinks throughout the original article or essay that you can click on to go deeper and, you know, get some more context around some of the details that I shared. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, I love y'all. Peace. Visionary mind frame got me open in the ears. I pause for a second, listen to the words that I spit. So can you feel it? Lose focus and you start to see the vibration hitting every nation. Check your foundation. A matter of energy got me circling for the world around me. Stand strong, holding the position I belong. Finish clearing the past and then you move on to a new way to go. You're engaging the flow, the critical mass. Got a brother running so fast, but will I slow down? The wheels and the bus go round and round. Sitting thinking how I'm living, what the longer now I'm coming to a point where I'm bridging the gap. I reckon living with the interpersonal ethic emerging to another level with my culture open your mind vision no time open your mind in this new vision no time open your mind in this new vision no time open your mind in this new vision no time open your mind in this theme song new vision is performed by Achilles the cosmonaut find more from Achilles the cosmonaut on your favorite music streaming app.